Hey, how are you? Can you hear me? Yep. Yeah, loud and clear, loud and clear. Trying to oh. do I'm doing well. How are you guys? Yeah, yeah, we're good. We're good. Say it, Michael. I know what you're thinking. What do you think I'm thinking? Lance is growing a beard. <laughs> Lance has grown a, a, a strong beard in the last week, hasn't he? I know. I know exactly what you're thinking. You don't even speak. I wasn't thinking that. I was going to on the fact that I was having a glass of wine and I felt bad. But... Well, I'm impressed anyway, Lance. Even if Michael isn't. I am trying. I thought you were going to comment on my name before it was that it said Elmi on it. I don't know if anyone picked up on that because this was, I only use Zoom to talk with friends. So last time I was hoping we could edit that out. It said, I think Lance, AKA L Money. <laughs> <laughs> no way is that getting edited out. Uh, hey, look, no. I, when, I, when I sign in for my uh, iPad, uh, I sign in as Anna, which is my daughter's name because she usually uses that for Zooming with her friends. So, uh, you know. Is Anna at the age that she can Zoom with her friends now? Oh, yeah, that age being three. It's amazing. Well, that's what COVID does, right? Yeah. Huh? Yeah, well, that too. But uh, no, she uh, she's all about the FaceTime, uh, the, the FaceTime gimmicks where it makes oh. heart come out of your eyes and things. Absolutely. Oh, nice. All the cool Wait until she uh, Zooms with you, little one, Michael. Yeah, Transit, transatlantic be, friends. That'd be a, well, they shouldn't, to be honest. You know, that'd be a long distance date. Yeah, <laughs> I approve. I approve of the marriage. <laughs> uh, oh, I may, look, he may be down. I'm all, about, I'm all about arranged marriages. It's a bad, big bad world out there, you know. I want to be able to. He, pick, he, may be down, he might be down here any second because he's just had one of those twenty-four hours where he. Doesn't yeah? He wants his dessert before mains. He doesn't want to sleep. He you know sugar rush at a birthday party Sunday afternoon, and I managed to literally get head to pillow at five to eight, and then sprinted down here. And wow, he's probably five is a is a dream in our house. It's an aspirational goal. Really, is yours worse? Well, it's getting, you know, she just comes out and she's got all these sort of, this, this precise sort of checklist of excuses, <laughs> you know, which she rattles through. And then there's always one or two new ones that you're like, oh, damn, I haven't, uh, I don't have an answer for that one. <laughs> and half of them are sort of adorable and half of them are just really, really annoying. <laughs> you know, an extra kiss. Your kid asks for an extra kiss. What are you going to do? Say, no, go back to your bedroom. Surely that's part of the annoying ones, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Ask your mother. <laughs> well, everyone tuning in from home, welcome to another episode of Facilitate Talks. This is part two of what has, um, what, what by the end of uh, Monday evening became a two-part series. Uh, yeah, we just suddenly decided that very quickly. So, quick recap from last week. We answered question one, which was Lance's question. We did Nina's question around diversity and inclusion. Um, and yeah, we were just, we were getting right into a really, really good discussion when we kind of, the, the clock beat us there just before Anthony was able to, to, to throw his, um, his curveball in. 
Um, but we thought, look, why don't we make this a two-parter, record the second episode today, and, um, and yeah, allow Anthony um, the opportunity to, to talk about his point around Mesoblast, which we just got started getting into. We wrapped up last week with, um, with Nina's question around diversity, and I thought that brought a really interesting conversation from all of us, which... Um, yeah, took took basically the, the the second half of the show completely, which is why we're here in in a part two. And I'm going to hand over to you, Anthony, because we normally end the episode with with your question, but this this week round we're going to start with you. Yeah, so I think you're you're, you're right, mind. Michael. Uh, it was a reflection of the importance of the issues we covered last week that we basically ran out of time. Mm. Um, but it's also part of life that uh, the, the, the work of bringing drugs to the patients uh, carries on. And as, as luck would have it, in the last week that intervened between uh, last time we all got together, uh, there were two more material pieces of news from the field uh, to add to the one which I, I wanted to talk about. The one I wanted to talk about, which I still do actually, uh, was the Mesoblast ODAC uh, ADCOM meeting at the FDA, which I, I spent a large part of the day uh, glued to online. And the ADCOM, as most of our viewers will know, uh, reject, uh, uh, excuse me, uh, blah, 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 blah. <clears throat> that's my Michael impression. Um, the FDA ADCOM, as most of the viewers know, almost unanimously recommended approval of the, the mesoblast drug Remstem cell L uh, for pediatric graft versus host. It's a self-evident truth for all rooting for any drug. Uh, there are no drugs approved for that terrible, terrible disease at the moment. Uh, but in the briefing document that they issued, and Michael, maybe you can punch out a link to that uh, briefing document uh, along with this, uh, this yeah. podcast. Yeah, sure. Um, it had what I can only phrase as severe criticism of the CMC platform. Uh, it questioned the, uh, the validity of the potency assays for the drug. It questioned the scalability of drug manufacturing, and it questioned the donor-to-donor uh, -donor variability uh, of the source material for this drug. Really, in my mind, it, it questioned whether the manufacturing process really is under control. And uh, I think, as we all know, the bar at the FDA is, uh, remains as high there for drugs meeting uh, unmet needs as for drugs meeting any need. And uh, I'll, I'll put my uh, neck out there and say, uh, I anticipate the FDA uh, will reject this drug uh, before the PDUFA date, which is the end of September, uh, even in the light of what the ADCOM generally agreed was compelling uh, clinical data. And yeah, I mean, I, the data was something in the region of what, like 65, 66% yeah. effectiveness. Is that right? 75, I think. Yeah, so they're, they're, they're pushing. I mean, this was not a placebo controlled trial, which the ADCOM had a lot to say about, and it wasn't positive. Um, and this drug has failed previous placebo controlled trials. But I think uh, the Kaplan-Meier curve uh, versus the historical data set was, was very compelling. I think at the end point, Mike, you're right, it went from the 20% range to the 60% plus range. Yeah. Uh, survival. And you can't 
fake survival, right? Yeah. So there's definitely something there clinically, but, I, but I'm really concerned about the FDA's uh, comments uh, about manufacturability. I think, uh, you know, I know everyone has their, their corporate affiliations and uh, wishes to behave in a, in a responsible manner in responding to this. But I think the general question is, you know, it's a philosophical question, you know, how you know, should you modulate the bar for oppressing uh, an obvious clinical benefit uh, and take some risk on manufacturing? Or should you, uh, you being a regulator, hold the line? The um, how good is good enough when there's no un, when there's an unmet medical need for kids? Yeah, I think the thing is is that if a manufacturing process is not uh, not in control, the FDA's concern is that some kids might be getting the drug, and some kids might be getting a drug which actually isn't the drug, and then it becomes a, a lottery. Uh, that's the that's the crux of the issue. Is is every batch the same? You know, if you go in and buy Tylenol, you know, if it's fifty fifty whether your bottle of Tylenol works or doesn't work, um, you know, that I think societally is is not okay. Mm. And of course, we're dealing with something much more severe than a headache here. Mm. And this is a just for a clarifying question: Is this a drug that requires or relies upon donors to create the drug? This is not like um, taking cells from my own body or someone that uh, someone in my family that we know there's a match. This yeah. is, this is taking it from a donor and then expecting it to work well. Um, yeah, that's a very interesting point. An interesting point, Lance. This is uh, in my, in my world, there's actually two sorts of allergenetic medicine. Uh, one is the old uh, embryonic stem cell dream uh, of 10 or 15 years ago with absolutely limitless expandability from a single donor. And the other is a more modern uh, allergenetic uh, view where individual donors can manufacture a, a good amount of drug, uh, but multiple, multiple donors are needed over the life cycle of a, of a product. And here they expand a, a marrow donation to a donor cell bank and each vial of the DCB uh, comprises a lot of product. So donor variability is a thing um, as well as batch variability, uh, intra-donor, if you will. So there's two uh, degrees of freedom for variability to, to, to work on, uh, on there. Yeah, because the process, the, the expansion process was under scrutiny um, as well, wasn't it? That's right. It's, it's, it's under scrutiny in terms of its ability to make enough product mm. uh, to serve uh, the, the patient population and to make... Um, enough product which is potent, you know, the potency assays were questioned, um, and uh, to make it, uh, that product in a, in a consistent manner. Yeah, and I, I asked that question, and that, that helps, because the way I look at it is there's a business risk that I don't, that I think is relevant to the company itself, and in this, if this is an unmet need of which there is no other option, then I think whether or not you can create enough for the patient demand I don't see that as being as binding and important when it comes to the approval, right? Whereas the potency and how effective it is certainly matters. But if you're talking about nothing versus something, I would think something is better than nothing, yeah. you know, in very simple terms to be able to say whether that 
is a threshold or a barrier. So that that part doesn't make as much sense to me, right? Because I would yeah. think you could choose an option to have something that would have a clinical benefit versus yeah. nothing at all and we're back to square one. Yeah, to argue against myself though, Lance, this drug has a stellar safety profile. Yeah. Okay, so the, the Hippocratic Oath is in, in, in no danger of being broken here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that, that, and that's why I mean, I guess, like how much you can produce and what the yield is essentially shouldn't yeah. have as much bearing as the safety and, you know, reproducibility and all of that, right? So I would, yeah. so that doesn't make as much sense to me that that would be a barrier to approval. I'm going to argue the opposite, and that is if you can't make enough of it, um, you're essentially... Uh, not delivering on your moral and ethical obligation uh, to provide the patient population with a drug if it is approved, right? And so I think that that's where the manufacturability and CMC questions come in from the FDA, and I think they are valid. And I think one of the key points that was made, and I'm speaking as an individual, not a representative of my company here, but one of the points was made that in order to supply the market, the scale-up may actually exacerbate a lot of the inconsistencies that have been seen recently um, and have been seen over the course of the clinical trials. Um, and that might, at the end of the day, reduce the efficacy of the drug. So are your clinical outcomes uh, valid in, in that setting? And I think those are, I would argue those are really key questions. Um, and in any other setting uh, where you, you haven't really worked those things out, um, you may have a kind of a compassionate use solution in order to supply patients with, um, with a drug that, that seems to work, but uh, it's not a commercial product, right? And, and that's, I think, where, where, where maybe some of the discussion might come in. Um, but, but, I mean, this is, this is tough. It's really tough. It is, and it's going to be tough for Mesoblast because, you know, you, you don't make money on compassionate use. To be blunt, um, that's exactly what I'm saying. They've, they've never had an approved drug. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I, I think you're spot on, Nina. And um, I mean, again, though, I'll argue against myself, if you will, in the sense that some very well-known drugs were literally rationed post-approval. Perceptin, you know, now blockbuster breast cancer drug, Enbrel. Both of those drugs were rationed and physicians had to choose which patients got them and which patients didn't get them. You know, this is an awful, awful eventuality if it comes to pass. But they were rationed uh, for other reasons, I would argue. Inability to produce sufficient drug. But, but whatever was produced was, was functional correct. and consistent yes that's right. and that, that that is the core core difference yeah. that i that i would, would so, highlight the remis themselves in an even worse situation because they, they they do have issues with manufacturing enough drug or they may have uh but they and also, consistency yeah exactly we're going to get in such trouble for this uh, podcast michael well you know if that's the case then i mean i i see where you're coming from nina right that's that's sort of with a built-in not assumption, but it's saying, yeah, if all that, if all the rest checks out and it's just a matter of um, reproducibility to the, to a certain yield, then, you know, that's kind of where I'm coming at from it. I, I think part of it too, though, is do you need at some point when you talk about that rationing perspective, right? Do you, 
it's like chicken or the egg. Do you need some revenue in order to improve the process and to invest in to improve it? Or you like, are we even going to give them a shot to be able to do that? Because they might have something that's that's getting it pretty close, but they need that additional revenue to be able to build it out and, and expand it and make it to carry it that, that, that next step. And just in terms of any sort of precedent that's been made, um, maybe all of you might have some insight on this. How often is the recommendations from a committee like this taken into consideration by the FDA for approval? Like, is this like the crux of the FDA's evidence over the next 30 days before, um, before we get uh, an approval decision? I mean, Adcom gave a thumbs up, right? And that is because of clinical need. And I think that, 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 is, that is an important message here. Um, I think the, the numbers that I read is that out of the, out of one out of five of the ones that have a thumbs up still get rejected by the FDA down the line. So 20% mm -hmm. um, on average. But at this point, I, I, I'm, I'm going to argue against Anthony and say I'm, my hopes are still up for, for this one. Uh, and that is mainly based on, on the clinical need. Um, and, and hopefully there, there will be kids that can get it. Um, see yeah i i i i think one in five uh, that's actually i i thought that the fda overruled adcoms less frequently than that i thought i'd seen a one in eight one in nine uh, number but but you, you could well be right uh, um i think that they, they can do it uh it's not a good look i don't think they like to do it uh, but i also remind us all that uh everyone on the adcom with the exception of the patient advocates and so forth are mds and uh, frankly, not that interested in the CMC side of things. But also, look, so we're not going to ask everyone to vote yay or nay on this call. It might not be fair. Um, however, um, we have to bear in mind that this isn't, this is a week ago, this was in isolation. But as Anthony said, you know, we're now talking about, we're not talking about this mesoblast situation in isolation. We're now seeing a a snowball of a couple, of, other, couple yeah. of other bits of news. So, this oh my gosh, yes, just when, you, uh, just when you thought you could get out of bed and, uh, and, and check your email, uh, Biomarin's hemophilia A uh, BLA was rejected uh, by the FDA. They received a complete response letter. And this uh, blindsided, as far as I can tell, myself included, this blindsided everyone. Um, Biomarin certainly publicly stated that they felt blindsided by the agency's uh, recommendation here. And uh, another piece of news in today is that Audentis saw a third death in their AAV uh, clinical trial. It's already on hold uh, from the previous two deaths. Uh, but this is, um, th these two events are both tragedies, uh, in my opinion. One is because uh, the, the hemophilia community uh, was so eagerly anticipating uh, approval of this drug from Biomarin. Mm -hmm. And I think they, any, any death in a trial is a tragedy, but this is particularly distressing in another uh, pediatric trial um, for, for dentists. And I think, uh, I hope I don't need to say that our hearts go out to both of those patient populations. Um, the reason for the FDA complete response letter to Biomarin was a request for longer term uh, clinical follow-up data. 
There's a lot of ins and outs behind that request, but I think a line has been drawn in the sand here uh, to a field which has really marketed itself as potentially a one and done therapeutic modality for diseases which have been you know, lifelong therapeutic sentences for patients. Um, and also potentially uh, we are seeing the beginning of the end of what I call the ultra high dose uh, AAV type trials with the with the uh, the results last year from Solid and now this year from Audentis. Biomarin's therapy sits, uh, by the way, uh, essentially in order of magnitude below the Audentis drug in, in dose, so we don't anticipate any problems there, and the safety did look did look good. Um, so is this the uh, is this the end of the world? No. <laughs> Simple. No. I don't think. Yeah. It's so we now need no, right? enormously longer clinical trials. We can't use high dose. I mean, these are, these are, I mean, this is a very, very broad um, industry spectrum we're looking at, right? With very individual manufacturing questions and 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 efficacy questions that that we're asking, and I'm not sure we can uh, we can all judge them by one question. Right, uh, ultra high dose doesn't necessarily fall into the same category for me as um, long-term follow-up. And I think the question for long-term follow-up uh, and the one and done, I think is a valid one as we're looking at these um, drugs that have uh, exceedingly high, high prices and uh, we can justify them if they're one and done, um, but we need to be sure they're one and done. And if they're not, then um, should the second dose be free? Uh, I mean, there's, there's a lot of discussions we can have around that, that part. In terms of ultra high dose, I mean, the minute a, a clinical trial has um, has casualties affiliated with it, of course you need to stop it. But that's a different, I think that that's a different aspect of what we're looking at here. Um, but I think what we're what we're seeing in general um, this year in particular is is just a manifold of of um, occurrences and events that that are, that are affecting our industry. Um, and uh, that is not least to the current COVID con uh, situation where clinical trials are also on hold, um, where, where we see an impact of that now, now starting to, to come in. Um, where uh, we're in an in industry that is uh, still um, driven very, very fast by uh, investor patterns and uh, milestones associated with first in human, which are maybe sometimes pushing us uh, faster than we should. Uh, especially when it comes to manufacturability, to get back to uh, to the questions asked around uh, around mesoblast. So I think it's. I mean, we, we can go in any direction discussing this, but I'm not sure we should uh, judge the industry uh, with a single question. My, I wholeheartedly agree. Is my is my opening? <laughs> no, I agree. Yeah. Uh, look, uh, let's. Uh, what I'd like to just pause on there and reflect on is pricing, and the one and done concept. Uh, we did an internal uh, analysis of the lifetime healthcare costs of a heme A patient. And the number we came up with uh, was about 17.17 million US dollars lifetime costs. Um, that's a, a lot of money. Um, but it is, uh, it confers a, I think, a life expectancy greater than 60 years for the patients, which is approaching uh, normal, uh, but there's also a lot of, um, a lot of quality of life issues in, in 
even with that spend. And one of the really impressive things about the biomarine drug was the uh, profound reduction in bleeding episodes that these patients experience. And a bleeding episode is just there's nothing good about it. Um, nevertheless, uh, the, the projected price point, which was rumored for this, for this drug, Valrox, uh, Octavian is, uh, is, the, is the, the market name, uh, was between two and three million dollars. And that's um, two to three times more expensive than Zolgensma for SMA, which created enough of a stir when it was priced uh, recently. Uh, so I think even though, of course, the FDA does not opine on or influence pricing uh, per se, I think the message was clear actually from the regulator that if you're going to have one and done uh, pricing at launch, you need one and done clinical data to support that pricing at launch. Um, that what I said is categorically untrue because the FDA does not directly influence that. But I think uh, reading between the lines, um, that's what I see there. I, I would say that and I think that's fair. If you're talking about one and done treatment, then you should have data to, to, back, to back that up, right? Or, or at least be leading you towards, because it's hard, right? You'd have to have a clinical trial that goes on for a very, very, very long yeah. time and follow up yeah. goes on for a very long time. But you should have data that indicates that you're on that trajectory. Um, one of the things that I've, you know, about Bluebird and that is public is the pricing and the approach, right? Where there's a recognition that we've got a certain amount of data and we've got a certain amount of follow-up, but the way that Bluebird has done the pricing um, at a high level is sort of sharing in that risk where, right, there's, a, there's an initial amount or initial cost, and then every year there's different milestones of efficacy that, that there's a check-in and there's, a, there's an agreement that the efficacy is still meeting those milestones, and then different payments come into play. So I think Bluebird has been very innovative in terms of the, the, the drug product itself. But then on that pricing, I thought was, was really, and again, this is, you know, only a couple of years into gene and cell therapy. But to me, that was a really innovative way to kind of look at the pricing where you're sharing the risk with the patients, um, with the insurance agencies. Um, and so kind of putting your money where your mouth is when it comes to how well is this going to work, right? And, and not just expecting all of it up front, um, knowing that it's gonna take time to, to kind of prove the, the overall eff efficacy. So I thought that was a really good approach. Yeah, I agree. I, I agree completely, Lance, that Bluebird has been uh, not alone, but, but with others at the forefront of uh, novel pricing uh, mechanisms and Michael, some of those discussions have been among among the my most memorable uh, from the fireside chats in the in the girl days, especially Michael Myers' uh, commentary on how we can uh, take these drugs to the patients without bankrupting the uh, the Western healthcare system. Yeah, I think you put Dave Lennon under the spotlight. And... Oh, I feel so. Bad. <laughs> I kind of feel bad. Sorry, Dave, if you're listening, I, I feel kind of bad about that. But you dealt with it very well, and of course um, the price point that Avexis came out with was significantly lower than what, what had been rumored mm. at the time that we had Dave up on the, uh, on the podium there, Michael. Mm. Um, then uh, Audentis uh, today uh, reported its third death in the um, X-linked myotubular myopathy trial, another 
uh, awful uh, X-linked uh, pediatric condition. And uh, interesting there, they have two dose groups. Uh, one is uh, 300 trillion viral genomes, and the other is 100 trillion viral genomes. Uh, all of the deaths have been seen in the 300 group, uh, which is the 3E14 per kilogram. Uh, is that my maths right there, Nina? Don't look at me. About right. Versus the 1E14 BGs per kilogram um, cohort. And there's a couple of things here. You know, if you're dosing at that level per kilogram, uh, even in pediatrics, you know, that's obviously you're talking uh, E15 viral genomes per patient. Uh, you know, I know bioreactors that push out less than 1E15 BGs. Um, so this is a you know, titanic amount of vector to produce. And again, you know, referencing back to the previous conversation about Valox, it's a uh, titanically expensive amount of uh, viral genomes to manufacture. Uh, but I, but I, I feel now we are starting to see something crystallizing out here, which is a, uh, a, a general agreement on uh, essentially DLT, dose-limiting toxicity, um, at the high end of the AAV uh, range. So my end of the world theme is has now um, has now the end of the world now has two walls around it, uh, which is not only this increased requirement for ever ever increasing ratchet for long term clinical data and a a ceiling on dose, which will be a ceiling on efficacy because sometimes uh, toxicity and efficacy uh, do not mm. cooperate. I don't know much about that trial, but in terms of the patient cohort, was this um, was was this basically the, the last resort for them? Yeah, there is no. This is a. This is one of those. I mean, the, in my mind, there's the sort of multiple. It's a very interesting point, actually, uh, Michael. There's there's a few different categories of drugs for gene therapy. Okay, there's this category, which is ultra orphan, pediatric, and these children struggle to make it out of their first decade of life. Um, th there is no therapy, and it's it's just an absolute heart-wrenching tragedy in every dimension. Then you move up into, say, Duchenne's muscular dystrophy. You know, life expectancy, um, you know, 20 to 40 years, maybe more. And, you know, there is at least some standard of care uh, to assist these patients, mm. okay? Obviously, still uh, an awful diagnosis uh, for the patient or, or family. And then at the other end of the spectrum, there's the, the thalassemias, the hemophilias, where the life expectancy with a, with a very decent uh, standard of care is you know, in the 60, 70, 50, 60, 70 region, uh, depending on a few other variables. And, but uh, also as you move down the axis I've described, you're moving to higher doses and larger patient populations, which from a CMC perspective means trouble. And I think that's the fascinating thing about the field now, as we, you know, we can trust, you know, SMA and Zolgensma, um, XLMTM and the Odentis drug, uh, AT132, uh, at one end of the spectrum. And as I said, you know, moving up through Duchenne's and diseases like that in the mid-ground to uh, the, the, the longer term, large patient population, higher dose uh, deals with the thalassemias and the haemophilias and so forth.
which obviously come with a larger um what's the word the 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 sort of the, the standard of care has a significant cost over a long period of time yeah yeah no I, yeah as i think i mentioned to you uh, earlier today michael we, we we estimate that the standard of care to be 17 million dollars one seven million dollars lifetime cost for a email patient this is a huge societal burden you know that money is not being spent on heart transplants and and can other cancer treatments is it you know, healthcare economics is ultimately a zero-sum game, uh, constrained by macroeconomics. And you know, last time I checked, uh, macroeconomics not looking so good at the moment. Um, but look, back to kind of like your your sort of big picture question of is this the end of the world? Now, I think it was probably under Scott Gottlieb that he said that you know we're looking at X number of approvals year on year. And we are also looking at increasing the size of our uh, the FDA um, team for, the, for, for, for approvals to support the cell and gene therapy approvals. Yeah. Now, are you, like, are you almost suggesting that there could be a backtrack against that? I mean, uh, first of all, I think, uh, you know, Scott Gottlieb's... Uh, time as commissioner was a was a, a time of uh, overdue uh, much welcome and excellent change at the FDA uh, mm -hmm. I think one of the one of the best things about interacting with the FDA now uh, from where I sit is I increasingly hardly recognize any names on the review panels uh, because there are so many new names and so many highly oh, qualified okay. names yeah absolutely yeah, it, it, it yeah. used to be tedious we all used to know each other and yeah. uh, I'm happy to say that we, we don't know because he's done a, he did a tremendous job, which as far as I'm aware, Steve Hine has continued uh, in beefing up the staff. Honestly, uh, Michael, I think they could continue to beef up the staff and we could see uh, you know, a downturn in applications and we still wouldn't have enough reviewers for this, for this field, such as being the growth mm -hmm. of the talent gene. Yeah. Um, but, I, but I do think that, we're, that the field has failed to meet uh, Gottlieb's predictions, which I, I remember talking to you about is public predictions about the number of INDs, but more significantly, the number of approvals. Mm. Uh, and I think, um, you know, obviously Biomarin's been pushed out a year or two at least, and uh, Ordentis, you know, who knows the, the ultimate fate of AT132 mm. uh, and that program. Uh, but I think the field has failed to, uh, failed to meet his projections, and I, I've gone on, on the record in, in, in stating that in recent months. Mm. We could talk uh, about this. We we could end up in the same situation as last week and talk about this yeah. for such a long <laughs> period of time. But um, I don't know what, how you guys feel. Scott, about Gottlieb, Scott Gottlieb, you're welcome to uh, you're welcome to join this podcast anytime you like to uh, set the record straight on your your er erroneous projections from two years ago. I think you've got to do better than that, Anthony, and just open up your black book and call him rather than <laughs> 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 rather than just. Uh, a public a public invitation um but look let's let's wrap it up there i mean thank you so much guys um and i think i should thank you twice for for doing this over two weeks um you've been fantastic guests nina and lance um and of course let's Anthony, check it again uh nina you said it's not the end of the world right not the end of the world i would vote the same way i think you know there's catching up to do on on both sides right I, again I'm one of these people that joined the field two years ago and had no idea how long it's even been existence and, and where we're at now. So 
I think more and more people are getting involved and, and trying to get, trying to get into this field and help and to treat patients ultimately. So there's going to be some ebb and flow. So you're, I, one of those, you're one of those new names, Lance. It's awesome. And I think we, we need to, we need to just also start looking at other fields and learning from other fields rather than sitting in our own uh, yeah. little bubble. Uh, it's a conversation I had with one of my, my team members today who uh, said that they've been looking to develop a filter for a particular uh, area for 15 years. And then somebody went to a brewery and learned that they were using exactly that kind of filter for the last hundred. So I think there's, um, there's opportunities to just look across the fence and see what other people are doing and bringing in people from other areas like Lance. Look, let's wrap up there. And as I said, thank you so much for joining us. I think this was two awesome episodes that um, are going to add a lot of value to new people in the field, as well as to um, hardened veterans, similar to, to you, Anthony, to, to, to chew over. Um, and um, yeah, a couple of quick plugs. We are now just over a month away from Advanced Therapies Connect facilitates virtual event taking place um, at the end of September, which coincides with the, um, the news from uh, about Mesoblast, Anthony. So we'll probably- Oh my gosh, up. yes, you'll be right on top of it. It may, it may have broken by then. I, by the time we- I yeah. doubt it, but it may have, yeah. Yeah, and um, I'm really excited about the agenda for this virtual event. I've not, like, I have to be honest, I've not been excited about virtual events all summer. I've actually been dreading doing them. But there's something around the way that we that we're doing house, which is actually based around working groups and round tables rather than webinar after webinar after webinar, which I think is going to be very, very different. We're also throwing in a cocktail night and a pub quiz. Um, so and that I think that's going to be balanced around um, timing so I can put my son to bed and then join for cocktails, which is perfect. Um, and Nina, I think your organization are going to be leading a working group as well. So I don't know if you, I know that some of the, the details of it are, are still being ironed out, but this could be a good opportunity to, to say a few words about it and we can see who might want to join that, that round table. Um, I can't say too much. It's a little bit of a surprise yet, but uh, I have it on good authority that uh, I'm going to be tag teaming with Lance's organization again for that. Oh, cool. And I that is by that. pure coincidence, but it's uh, with very much excitement. And we're obviously looking into manufacturability, um, manufacturing, manufacturing automation. That's a difficult word to say. Manufacturing automation. I should you be able to I, do that. I see. So yes, much excitement around that. And it's um, it's kind of like an automation. Well, I think the original title was Automation One Hundred and One, right? And they're uh, very much looking at the when and how of automation. Yep. Nice. Sounds so cool. yeah, so we'll be we'll be looking to to invite people to join that working group and start mapping out a roadmap of where their current bottlenecks are and how automation can alleviate some of that pain. So um, I'll include the link. It well, it's a very simple link. It's advancedtherapiesconnect.com for you to go and register, completely free to attend. Um, please join us. And has anyone else got anything that they want to drop in there that they want to, would like the wider audience know about. Lance, potentially, um, I know you're a, um, a ambassador for getting new people into this industry. Is there something, is there anything around that that you want to mention? 
Yeah, you know, thanks for that. Uh, so yeah, I'm working with MassBioEd and they've got a career ambassador program. I'm, I'm one of the career ambassadors. And so if you're looking for a way to get involved and to give back and to, to help educate kind of the next uh, generation of future scientists and biotech folks and cell and gene therapy, um, it's a great way to participate and, you know, share your, your advice and your input for folks that are trying to understand what this is all about. So it's a good way to plant some seeds. Oh, brilliant. So they're looking for people working in the industry to go out there and re give an olive branch out to new people uh, to, to come into this sector. Yeah, and what's cool, they're, they're even targeting, you know, high schools and colleges. So even folks like in STEM programs or an interest in STEM down at the high school level, um, People like me, I had no idea what biotech even was. It just happened that I talked to some folks and they introduced me to the field. So this is a way to sort of get that information and that thoughts uh, out there at a, at a, for folks at an earlier age. Perfect. And if there's a website that people can go to, then I can include the links to that um, in the show notes as well. So um, I'll speak to you about that offline as well. Sure. Yeah, I'll get that to you. Cool. And any final words from you, Anthony? We're hiring. We're hiring in all areas uh, at all levels. Um, it's, we sit in an interesting position. We're lucky enough to sit at the center of the wheel here in this field. And working at Dark Horse is uh, incredibly demanding uh, and incredibly rewarding. Uh, and we welcome inquiries at any time. We don't habitually post job descriptions. Uh, but as I said, we're expanding uh, both in the London office and uh, stateside. Um, so we're always uh, interested to hear from individuals who, uh, who like to be challenged. Great. Well, especially at, time, at times like this, when the jobs market in various sectors is, is not looking great, it's so positive to hear of organizations yeah. like yours that are... We're, we're very grateful for, for this. I think we can all echo that. We're hiring nonstop, and I know I see Bluebird posts come up frequently. So I think the entire industry is uh, is definitely hiring. Yeah, agreed. Brilliant, brilliant. Well, thank you very much, guys, and everyone listening and watching. Enjoy the rest of your day, and we'll see you again soon. Take thank care, you, guys. Bye. Bye.